my dad actually, uh, he, he was actually saved on top of a barn where he had the pastor of the local church working for him and on top of the roof he led dad to the Lord and uh, he was saved and so changed our whole family. We always went to church on Sundays. That was a big, big time to go. We never went to town most of the time other than go to church. We were those kids that they sent out and they called in when it was time to come in at night. And that was amazing. It was a great way to grow up. I wouldn't change it for anything. We had always been very involved in our church back in Shadow. Uh, that was a big part of my life. Uh, I was I was a deacon, uh, an elder in the church, and I always will look back fondly on the days uh, that I was involved with our church back there. When, when we got to Rapid City, um, and Andrea was already going here, uh, and she just said, I like this church. So I checked into it, and we, we started uh, going to the classes that they have and, and finding out about uh, serving here and what the church taught, what the church believed. Um, and I was really surprised. It was just like I believed. Love Week is, is something that has really been a big, a big help in our lives and a, and a way to be able to give back a little bit of, of what God's done for us. It's been a huge blessing in my life, I guess. It's, I, I like to help people with projects that usually they don't like to do themselves or most people don't like electricity, so um, I can usually get something done that they didn't like to do themselves. So. We all knew we wanted to be involved in Love Week. It's just such a cool and inspirational thing to be a part of. The years that I'd done it before they moved here, um, I was able to go to the children's home and some of those other places, and it just, it really clicks you into what is happening already in our community. I'm gonna be the kind of cliche one, but the work, work ethic is one of the big things that, of course, he taught me, doing the, it to the best of your ability, just like Jesus wants you to, and God wants you to. Just being able to see my daughter um, serve downstairs and the things she does, amazing and I'm so glad that she sees that it's a big deal and a big part of my life and something she wants to do too and dad definitely made sure we were at church <laughs> sometimes we didn't want to be there but I'm so glad he did and it's been an amazing part of our life my dad died in, in a car accident and he lived for a day and a half after the car accident I watched my dad die for Finally, his organs quit working, and he and they took the tubes out, and, and he he couldn't breathe on his own. It was it was the machine breathing for him. And as Dad died, he he looked up at all of us kids. He looked up to heaven, and he died. I'll always remember that. That is what my dad did for me. <laughs> That was the thing that I'll always remember. It's been a, a really incredible week. Uh, I've got a sermon prepared to share with you. Um, 
but I didn't want to get to that yet. Uh, the more and more that I read my Bible and the more and more I learn about who God is, the more I learn that I just don't give him credit enough. Uh, if you're like me at all, I have a tendency to look at the bad that happens in life, the things that, about my life that I don't like, and I kind of harp on those things. And it's so easy and quick to get beyond the things that God's already doing. So historically, a way that people fought the idea of forgetting is they built altars. What happened was God would do something incredible, like he would split water and say, walk on through. Uh, he would deliver them from the hands of, of some sort of enemy. He would feed them from the sky and did incredible things. And so what, what happened is that would happen, and they would not move forward without acknowledging it's God who fed us. It's God who saved us. It's God who did this. It's God who intervened. It's why if something happens in your family or just in your life where you quickly move on, like this is cool, but don't forget to acknowledge what God has done. So this past week, we as a church have been all over the place. And I'm going to share some things with you that quickly could come to the point of like, oh, well, I'm, I'm so proud of my church. Or, or even individuals, you could think of individuals, you could think of organizations. Here's, I'm going to ask a favor. I'm going to share some things with you. But here's the filter I want you to listen to. I want you to hear what I say and understand that it's God who did it. And I'm not being cliche. I'm not being good pastor right now. I'm just telling you. It's God who gave us the ideas and set up the connection points to, between the different people in our whole area. It's God who provided the resources through you and I. It's God who, who actually changes people's lives. It's God who should get all the credit. And so as I share these things with you, you can value the church. You can value each other. That's good. We're family. But I really want you, as you hear this, to be thinking, at least in your head, God is so awesome. And so you might be... Uh, tempted to clap as I read some of this. I'm going to ask that you reserve that, and I'll give you a time that you can get all the clapping out of your hands that exists, okay? But I want to I share with you what God did through us, but what God did. It started off last weekend when we gathered together across multiple locations, and in front of everybody was the option to sponsor kids. And on that weekend, 124 Zambian children got sponsored, adding up now over 400 children in northern Zambia get to go to school now because you and I said, God move. <laughs> and God is doing incredible things. Now, now let me, we walked out of that weekend and people volunteered like crazy. The numbers tell us that over 1,700 people spent over 5,500 hours all throughout this week. For those of you who are mathematicians, like, there's not that many hours. See, that's the power of a group of people saying yes to God, what God can do with it. To give you a little bit of a snapshot inside of this, of those 1,700 people included the post-22 baseball team. It included the Central High School cheerleaders. It included little toddlers making like snacks for dogs, and, and they would eat some of it too, just to be very open with you. 
And it included folks in their 70s and 80s, all ages, investing in this. If you remember how the week played out, you know that a tornado came through. And that affected some Fountain Springers. It affected some South Dakotans. And we had people volunteering and helping clean up. Can you imagine showing up to your house, seeing that a portion of it's destroyed, and then a whole crew of people show up in the name of Jesus and say, we're here to help you. We don't know you, but we're here in God's name. Uh, 49 vehicles for the Black Hills Works were clean and detailed. Uh, 600 backpacks full of school supplies were prepared and shipped off to Zambia, to the village that we partner with. 12,312 meals were packed up and prepared for kids against hunger. 12,000. And there's a couple more, and it's, it's hard for me to get through. There are many, many projects. final two I'll tell you about. One is uh, 290 homeless people were gathered into a building, sat down at chairs, and at those chairs, fountain springers literally washed their feet prayed with them and then gave them a brand new pair of shoes. And that might seem insignificant to some, but you got to understand many of them remarked they didn't remember the last time they had a new pair of shoes. The one that really got me, and this is the last one, One group got together and made 25 beds. 25 beds. Those beds were not extravagant. They're, they're not posturepedic. They're not incredible. But 25 of those beds were made for families who are in need of beds. And I noticed on Facebook from the organization that we supported in doing that, this was the post saying how grateful they were that people would build these beds. Here's what they said, a child slept on a bed for the first time. A child slept on a bed for the first time in his life last night. That's our city. There are needs all over our city all over our region, all over our globe. And God intervened in the lives of so many people. I don't get to tell you about all the gallons of paint that were painted all over the place, in, in places that were legal, for those of you concerned. The schools that were helped, the individuals that were helped, the nonprofits that were helped. But I did not want to move into a sermon without all of us recognizing God is alive and well. He sees the needs of his people. And I'm very proud of you for joining in and thinking about life outside of the idea of a church building.
So now I think is a good time to acknowledge what God has done in the Black Hills. I want to give you one final update and then we'll turn the corner. We're about to send our students off to camp. You need to know that 212 teenagers are loading up. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <clears throat> that's a parent going, I get a week, a week. <laughs> Five charter buses will be loaded up. 212 students, 40% of the students going utilized the $20,000 that you gave so that every student who wanted to go to camp gets to go to camp. These are more students than we've ever sent. Thanks for being so generous. I can't wait to hear their stories. Don't miss those weeks that follow. We'll tell the stories of what God does in the lives of those teenagers. So now I want to open up a new series, but, but if you're like, I need a bit of a commercial break. Well, I, frankly, I need something to pump me up and to get me in the mood for our new series. So for your viewing pleasure. <laughs> Sorry. For your viewing pleasure, take a look as we go into our new series that we've entitled Uncommon. Take a look. If you're not excited to hear a sermon, you're not alive right now at all. all right, we're just going to repeat that for the rest of the sermon. I love it. We're, we're going into a series uh, that's going to kind of get into the superhero idea. So, so here's how I want to open this, is, is this idea that you and I like the whole person that's unique, whether it's superpowers or, or if you go back to grade school and all that, you remember how you just tried to look unique. You just, what you wore was supposed to be like incredible and and so special and then you showed up and someone was wearing the same thing and you're like I'm not near as unique uh, the older you get in life and I think some of you are gonna, you're almost going to amen this you learn that our desire to be uncommon or unique is just cycling <laughs> it just starts to repeat the past 
give you a case in point, my dad and I were talking on the phone this week, and he said he was getting new glasses. I said, this is easy for you, Dad. Like, this is easy upon you. Just go get the glasses you wore in high school, and those are totally in style right now. Uh, and he didn't like that idea. But you would know if the longer you live life that the less unique people really are on how they dress. But, but some of you, you, you specialize in this. You feel like you are extremely unique. You feel like you've locked it in. No one dresses like you, looks like you, and you, you're that special. Maybe, maybe you fall in the category of hipster. Hipsters are folks that uh, feel like no one else looks like them. No one else dresses like them. They are as unique as unique can get. Uh, if, you do, if you've never seen a hipster, well, you've never paid attention to our band. <laughs> However... These are what's called hipsters, should you ever see one in public. Just helping you understand, this is a good sermon. These are hipsters. Now, some of you are like, so hipsters are lumberjacks. <laughs> you might be more like, they, they look, it looks like lumberjack. It look, well, so someone, I thought in a brilliant way, said, you know, hipsters appear to dress like lumberjacks and they think they're unique. I wonder how good of a lumberjack they'll be. So, to help us understand how good a hipster will be as a lumberjack, take a look at this. Hey, how are you? Good. Go right on that X and you hold that right in front of you. Now look right to camera and give us your name. You got it right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, good. So, Jason, you got boots, jeans, flannel shirt, big old beard. I mean, it's a good luck. Thanks, man. Uh, I got my faded jeans, one roll, brown mm -hmm. boots, brown belt, brown watch, plaid shirt. People ever say that's like a lumberjack look? Lumberjack, yeah. Lumberjack kind of look? One could say that, yeah. Does anyone ever say, dude, you look like a lumberjack? Yeah, I get lumberjack, sure. You look like a lumberjack? Yeah, my girlfriend. You get that yeah. sometimes? I mean, yeah, it's just sort of like it's a, like a lumber. Cool. Well, what we want you to do is take this axe, take this axe and throw it at that target right there and throw it at that target right over there now. What? Are you kidding me? <laughs> throw the axe. Yep, at the target. Close as you can get to that bullseye. I can't throw an axe, man. Like, come on. And throw it at that target. I don't hold axes, and this is like a medieval axe also. Take it and throw it into the target. <laughs> Nuts. <laughs> Nailed it. I hit the board. So now I've answered some of your questions in life. Uh, hipsters are notorious for thinking they are unique, they are uncommon, and as we know, they aren't. They just look like lumberjacks that aren't even good lumberjacks. Uh, growing up, you know this, you try to look special, you try to look unique, and as you get older, and let's just say as you mature, you understand that it's not your appearance 
that needs to be all that uncommon. And what you learn about life is that it's people's character. It's how people make decisions in life that seems to separate us into true what's important about uncommon and common. In fact, let's have this conversation. If you've watched the news at all over the past week, two weeks, something has come up in such a way that now we treat it and talk about it and think about it as though it's common. When someone goes into an environment and just kills people. You and I now have a list of examples of that happening. You and I now, over the course of time, I mean, you just think about right now, you can even process in your mind, you know, this shooting and that shooting and this happened and this is horrible. And these news stories cross your phone or, or you're watching TV and it just becomes common. It becomes so common that you hear it, it grieves you, but it doesn't even grieve you as much as you want it to grieve you anymore because it's so common. And then if you watch too much news, which I did this past week, you start to hear about how people are going to fix this. They think in order to go from this common threat, we, we need to limit guns or we need to limit who can come into our country or we need different policies and laws. And I would tell you that's not going to change going from what's common to uncommon. In fact, here's what I'm going to tell you. I believe our world does not need more laws and legislation. It does not need us to ban people and kick people out. Our world needs Jesus. And I would tell you, it begins not in another city or another state or another leader or another government. You and I have got to take this in such a way that the stories of people being killed messes us so much that you and I say, I need to start living differently. Rather than projecting it onto someone else, hoping someone else will make a certain decision that you think is right, if you and I collectively will gather together and say, all right, what is common nowadays must stop. And that means you and I must live in an uncommon way. And so I know that there's lots of ideas, lots of ideas about how the world should be different and how it should be changed. If you and I can have a, let's call it a four-week conversation, I think you and I ought to engage the idea of what can you and I do to change the world? It begins with you and I. Living in an uncommon way. So you need to know, I'm going to forewarn you, <clears throat> uh, some of what we'll say is not going to be popular and it definitely won't be easy. But here's what I want to do is unpack some stories out of a book in the Bible called Judges. At first, if you, especially if you're new to the Bible or, or new to church, like, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. Why is there a book? Well, the book is not about judging in that way. It's about a time in history in which judges were nearly the ultimate authority in, in some cases where people would take their disputes, just like you and I do now, to court, and this judge would resolve the issue, or at least say, you're right and you're wrong, and would deal with it. So this book is full of stories about judges. So if you love law, you love this book, but if you don't know this about the book of Judges, some have called it, and I would also call it this, it is the good news about Jesus before Jesus ever showed up. Because it's a book full of people who don't deserve to be used by God, but God still uses them. And I love those kinds of stories because I feel like I resonate with that. And so I want to unpack some awesome stories. Each week will be a different character, a true story. This really happened. 
But I want you and I to have that kind of a conversation where if you're sick and tired of hearing the news that you're hearing on your phones or on your TV, if you have a problem with how the world is unfolding, before you and I look far away, let's you and I have a four-week conversation about what's closest to us, our own souls. And so, here I want to open it up. Judges chapter 4. The story begins to unfold about a group that we'll get referred to quite a bit called the Israelites. These Israelites, if you don't know, like, who are they? They're the group of people that God freed out of slavery from, from Egypt. They were, they were under oppression, and, and God freed them. Remember Moses, the plagues, the split sea, all of that awesome stuff. Now we're further down in history. Judges 4.1 opens up the story I want to tell you. After Ehud's death, don't name your child that. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. Now, I'm going to stop, and you know this well enough that I like to stop way before I'm supposed to, but I like to stop here. Did evil, you might like evil in the Lord's sight. Like, what's that? I mean, you might evil, like, like, were they, like, I don't know. Here, I can tell you what the evil was, because it was bad. You're talking immorality at a horrible level. People sleeping with whomever they wanted to sleep with. People just divorcing at a, at a dime, just like literally saying, I just don't like you anymore, we're done. People doing evil as if they were worshiping gods that didn't even exist. They would make idols that were pornographic, put it in their house, teach their kids to worship them. It was, it was very bad. Some child sacrifice, some nastiness. They were doing evil. They were running from God, not following God. That God that freed them, they had basically disregarded that. But that's not the main part I want you to get a hold of. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again... That's what I want you to see. Again. In other words, again they did something stupid. Again they found themselves in a horrible situation. I wanted to point that out because I think before we really dive into the story, that you and I need to resonate with the fact that you and I have lots of agains. <laughs> Where you do something, say something, you talk about someone in a way you shouldn't, or you're whatever, you, you make choices that are poor choices. You say, oh man, I shouldn't do that, I'm so sorry for that. It's kind of like eating a, a maple bacon donut. You eat it like, oh, I should not do that again. But you do. You, you and I have a little bit deeper uh, issues where you and I will make choices and we'll be sorry for the choice, but we'll do it again. In fact, many of us right now are in the midst of an again. And what you got to know is understanding this, that when you go again and again and again and again against the will of God, it is like you're digging a deeper hole for yourself. Not that God has to be more aggressive at forgiving you. It's just harder for you and I to get out of a hole that we've dug so deep. See, many of us have been there. Like, i got to stop doing this. I know i got to stop doing this. This is not good. And again happens. And again happens. Uh, sometimes we read the Bible. We're like, I don't even relate to the Bible. Yeah, you do. Again. <laughs> and you're like, mm, yeah, I got that. And I didn't want you to miss such a, an important word, again. Now, here's what happens when you do something you shouldn't. Again and again and again and again. There are consequences. <laughs> when you do something you shouldn't, something unfolds in such a way that you typically get punished. Or maybe it's not even punishment. It's just the bad that happens because God said, don't do this. And there's a reason he said, don't do it. So... They are doing evil in the eyes of God, messed up stuff, again and again and again. Watch what happens. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazar, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, 
who lived in a really difficult city to talk about and say. I know some of you have expectations of your pastor being able to say that. There's better use of my time. Cicero, who had 900 iron chariots. And you're like, what? that's like super army. This is like the army of all armies. To have iron chariots and to have 900 of them, they were nearly unstoppable. No one could defend against that. Most people would fight on foot. And then you've got, you've got horses pulling 900 iron chariots. People couldn't even touch them. What this is pointing out is they were nearly indestructible as an army. Everyone would have feared them. He ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. What I want you to see is because some of you might wrestle with what I just read to you. You're like, David, I thought, I thought God was loving. And, and that verse just said that God let them, God let them get basically imprisoned, and not just imprisoned in a nice five-star prison, uh, got imprisoned in oppression, in cruelty. And at first glance, you're thinking, that doesn't sound very nice. Oh, and then some of you are like, well, but, and for 20 years, come on, God, like, how long does he have to put his thumb down on these people? Because we have a bit of a, a breakdown in our culture. Again, the common versus uncommon. What if God, allowing this group of people to get captured and, and have oppression on them, what if that was not a mean thing that God was doing? What if that was a kind thing? At first we're like, you're messed up. You're messed up, David. You totally missed it. Because you and I don't think of consequences as kind. I mean, I've, my children have never, after receiving consequences to decisions, saying, Father, thank you so much. I, did, I wanted to be grounded for a week. Oh, yes. I thought about my decisions and decided I want the consequence. No. I am regularly told throughout the summer, Dad, you've ruined our summer. And I'm like, sweet. That just means I'm a good parent. That's how that works. See, you and I don't like consequences. It doesn't change the older you get or the younger that you are. None of us like consequences. None of us like find them endearing and loving. But I want you to consider something. See, watch the track of the Israelites. They're doing things that are, that are so evil. In fact, they're doing things that were destroying themselves. Many of us do that. When God says, I don't want you to do certain things, it's not because he was just in the mood to make a bunch of rules. It's the laws that God created and said, hey, don't do this. We're out of our protection. So when they are doing evil in the eyes of God, they are destroying themselves. Many of us resonate with this. Many of us have had behaviors in our life that if someone didn't stop us, if we didn't hit rock bottom, we would have destroyed ourselves. Many of us at least have a friend or a family member that we can think of in our heads that they literally destroyed themselves. They drank themselves to a place. They, they did so many things in their marriage that their marriage just dissolved. Their kids rejected them. There's all of this stuff that you and I have examples in our own lives or other people's lives that we know a person can destroy their life. What if God was intervening in the lives of the Israelites and refusing to let them destroy themselves? And the only way to do that was to let them essentially get captured. Parents? If you don't let your kids have consequences, you need to know that's one of the most cruel things you can ever do as a parent. Bosses, if your employees never face a consequence because of a bad decision, you're a horrible boss. 
I'll say this way, our consequences can be a sign of kindness. Track this with me. If you teach someone that there are not consequences to decisions, you have prepared them for a life that there are no consequences. No one would raise their hands to say that life has no consequences. See, when your kids grow up in a home where there's no consequences, then they start, they get a job and start showing up to work late, and all of a sudden they're fired. They're like, what's the big deal? You see, you and I have got to understand that our choices have consequences, and what if one of the most beautiful things that God ever does, watch this, is punish us. I know you're like, this sounds morbid, but no, it's not. It's beautiful. God loves you so much to let you have consequences. One of the kindest things he's ever done to me is not let me get away with some stuff. So as we go through this story, I hope it resonates with you where you're like, yeah, again, again, and again, David, I got the again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again some more. But don't also throw God to the side as soon as you face consequences. In fact, I want to say something very direct to the guys at RCMU. You think your consequences are a punishment of God and he's against you. No, what if he's for you? What if the kindest gift God ever gave you was to go to prison? I'm telling you, consequences are not a rejection from God. Often, it's the love of God. So you've got the Israelites who have done evil in the sight of God. 20 years after being oppressed, they decide to talk to God about it. Now, I know some of us are like, I get that. Some of you, you waited 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and you got yourself into some junk where you're like, oh, no, and then you cry out to God. Well, Israelites now have now cried out to God 20 years. Don't miss the fact that it took them 20 years to recognize their way was not the good way. If you're like, what does cry out to God mean? It means they're recognizing they messed up. His way is the right way. He's all-powerful. He's the one true God. And so they cry out to God, and he hears them, and he steps in. So let me introduce you to two people, Deborah and Barak. Now, some of you are like, did he just say Barak? I did. It's in the Bible. I'm going to have fun with this. So Deborah and Barak, two characters that you need to know about. And so I told you there's judges leading these group of people, right? There's judges. Deborah is one of, Deborah is one of the judges, and in fact, she's a good judge. She's a judge that actually was notorious. People thought that she was actually one of the best, if not the best judge to have ever reigned as a judge. So she's judging. She's having people come to her with disputes. She's resolving the disputes. She talks to God, listens to God all of the time. Barak is essentially a warrior. He, he's, he's a battle guy. Uh, he's a soldier. So God says to Deborah, Deborah, I have heard the call the repentance of my people. They are crying out to me. I mean, I don't know, we don't know exactly how this played out. If she was praying, if it was in a dream, if it was etched in the sky. We just know that she hears from God that God is going to free them. I mean, can you imagine getting that kind of news? After 20 years of oppression? Judges 4, 7 Spell some of this out. And I will call out Sisera. This is God speaking through Deborah. I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Can you imagine, like, after years of oppression, all of a sudden God's like, I'm going to give you victory over this bad dude. You're going to be free. I mean, that kind of news 
You're posting that on social media faster than anything. You're, you, it's, it's explosively good information. And some of us read that like, well, that sounds good. That sounds neat. This group of people, God's going to do something in their lives. And you've missed the point of this being in the Bible. Let me show it to you. Your past doesn't have to define your future. What you've done in your past, how you've lived your life, the bad choices that you made or that others made, all that kind of stuff, it doesn't have to define your future. It doesn't have to drive your future. You've got these Israelites who have done horrible things, things they never should have done, and God hears their cry and says, I'm going to intervene. It doesn't mean, by the way, that your consequences just go away. It means that God is hearing you and he has not rejected you. He wants to be a part of you. In fact, some of us need just to be reminded of this. You need to know how God sees you. God loves you. He has not taken your actions and your behavior and decided, oh, I don't like you as much anymore. He created you and he loves you so much. In fact, God looks at you and does not go like, I can't believe it. He's desperate. The Bible says jealous for you to love him. And he's ready to save you at any moment. Notice John 3.17 says this. You're like, There's, it goes beyond John 3.16? It does. John 3.17, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. If you want to know God's intentions with you, his primary intentions are to save you and the person you're sitting next to, the people that you live with, the people that you don't even know or like, he wants to save them. So no matter what your again is and your again and your again is, God hasn't changed his mind, he wants to save you. So Deborah's got this news. She's like, we're going to get free. So she, she calls up Barack and was like, He's a warrior. He's the lead. He's supposed to, he's supposed to like lead them. So calls him up. Like, you won't believe what God's going to do. He's going to free us. He's, he, so here's what he wants you to do. And he's, she's saying this to Brock. He, you got to lead us. Get 10,000 troops. We're going to go down to this river. And you're going to dominate. It's going to be absolutely epic. They're going to make a movie out of this probably. She didn't say that. But this is going to be absolutely amazing. And you would love for his response to be like, yes, my knives are sharpened. Spears are sharpened. Let's do this. He doesn't say that. Barack doesn't own his role like you'd like for him to. Judges 4, 8. Barack told her, I will go if you go with me. I mean, that doesn't really sound like a warrior. I mean, and this, okay, I had the danger of sounding sexist. <laughs> and you've got to go to the culture of this. A warrior does not like, hey, I need you to go with me because I'm scared. No, he's like, yeah, let's go do this. But he looks at the woman judge. And he says, I'm not going unless you go. If you don't know historically, it was normal for no women to ever go to battles. And he says he won't go unless she goes. Now, some of you are like, oh, oh what a jerk, right? You're like, well, what a wuss. I don't know what you want to call him. He's like, like come on, man. Like, but you got to understand, don't, don't throw him out. Yeah, yeah, because he's scared for legitimate reasons. They're about to go against this super army of iron chariots. I mean, you and I are not jumping to the chance to do that. I mean, he's scared and legitimately scared, and he doesn't have enough faith in God, so he's going to try to borrow Deborah's. And so he's like, hey, you obviously talked to God about this. You go. 
Now, I'm going to cue you in. Brock told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. I want you to see something. Only if. Those are dangerous words to say to God. Only if. Some of us right now are saying that to God on a daily basis. God, I'll do this. Only if. I'll go do this. Only. And there's a lot of onlys. You're you're saying, God, I I love you. uh, And I want to spend eternity with you. But while we're here on earth, I will do this only if. I will give only if. I will serve only if. I will have that conversation only if. There's a lot of us who are only if in our lives away. I want you to think about, is that you? The only if comes from doubts. Do you understand? It's a, it's a doubting conversation. Only if. As in, I'm not sure what's going to go on. And doubts. And we often let our doubts determine our actions. Many of us are not moving and seeing God do incredible things in our lives and the lives of others because we're, we're just afraid. We're, we're limiting what God can do because we're limiting what we're going to say yes to. And here's what I have learned about obedience to God. When we limit how we'll obey God, We put a lid on our life. In other words, your obedience limit equals your lid. It's where you look at God, and you know that God's good, and most of us do. We're like, God's good. And when he asks you to do things, when you read in the Bible, oh, God says to do this. This is what the Bible says, and and you lock it on. What, What you limit your obedience to, in other words, what you refuse to say yes to that God has asked you to do, There's your lid. If you wonder about the danger, think of it like a water bottle. You've got God in your life, and you want him to pour in you and invest in your life. You want God to bless you and take care of you and live the full life. But you hit this moment where God says, hey, I want you to do this. And you're like, "Mm -mm." and as soon as you say no to God, it's not that he throws you out. It just puts a lid on what he can invest in you. Because he can't trust you with more, because you won't be obedient with what you have. And some of you think, oh, that stinks. I don't want that kind of life. And you think the, the worst part of this is that he's not going to fill you up anymore. But you've got to understand that every time you put a lid on yourself, you can't pour into anybody else. So for those of you wanting to be the best parent that you can be, you can't be the parent God designed you to be unless you are obedient to God. Because it transfers. You can't be the best boss or employee that you want to be without being obedient to God because you have a lid. So I want you to think about it in a different way. Instead of saying, God, only if you do this, I want you to think about even if. It's a different way to take on this, but but I want you to show where I get this. Daniel chapter 3 tells us a story about Three guys who are said that they have to bow down to the king. they got to bow down to this giant idol. And, and if you know your Ten Commandments very well, and if you know any of that, you, you're not supposed to bow down and worship any other god, fake god, anything like that. And like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do what you said to do. We're, we're not going to disobey God. The punishment to not bow down to the king's idol was to be thrown into a furnace and burned to death. Watch what happens. Daniel 3 tells us, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, they're saying this to the king, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Some of you are like, well, that's rather optimistic in front of the king. He will rescue us 
from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, oh, just got real. <laughs> but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. major difference between only if and even if. What if you and I, if you want to change the world, let's go back to that conversation. You don't like what you see in the news. You don't like the fact that people are killing people because they disagree with people. You don't like the idea that there is brokenness all over our country and our globe. If you don't like it, I would say rather than staring at other people, look at yourself. And are you saying only if or even if regarding when God asks you to parent? To be a student with integrity. To be a single person that waits until you're married to be intimate with anyone. Am I stepping on enough toes? I'm hoping so. <laughs> when it comes to your finances, do you do it only if or even if? Do you serve other people only if or even if? Judges 4.9 brings us back to the story and there were consequences for Barak. Let me show you. Very well, she replied. I'll go with you. I think there was probably commentary, you wimp, but I, don't, I can't prove it. Very well, she replied. I'll, I'll go with you. But you will receive no honor in this venture. For those of you associated at all with the military or have any family understanding, you know that honor is a big word in the military and to go to war and knowing that you will receive no honor we've done that before as a country it's not good but she goes even further you will receive no honor in this venture for the lord's victory over sisera will be at the hands of a woman and some of you're like what's the big deal you gotta know this was a bit more of a sexist culture and for a woman to get credit for the victory was another slap in the face. So let's go back. When we limit how we'll obey God, we put a lid on our life. If you're having conversations about what's been happening or what happened in Orlando, what frankly happens all over our world, if you're having those conversations, I plead with you do not neglect a question that presses on your own obedience. It's so easy to criticize what other people do, and justifiably so. But I'd like to urge you that our world needs uncommon bosses, uncommon friends, uncommon men, uncommon women. We need uncommon students. We need uncommon leaders. We need uncommon parents and married folks. We need uncommon people. And what the uncommon part is, is where you refuse to disobey God. You refuse to go against how God said to live life because his way leads to the full life. That, my friends, will change what needs to change. Let me pray for us. God, 
In the name of Jesus, I ask that you press in to every one of us and do not allow us to abandon this conversation, this story. God, I pray for everyone listening that whatever we are repeating over and over that goes against you and your will and what's healthy for us, God, I pray you'll help us break that trend. Intervene, God, in our lives. In fact, God, we pray that out of your kindness that you would intervene in our lives. God, I pray for those who are saying only, if you will, do this. God, help us to be even if people. We need your power. We need, we need you to be able to say such things to you. So God, I pray for us as a church, as a whole, that we'll be a group of people that will obey at all costs, any cost, that will follow your direction no matter what, even if it's not popular, even if we take losses, even if it hurts. God, help us to be that kind of people. And God, for the folks who now wake up every day and spend their day in grief, we ask that your Holy Spirit give them comfort and somehow out of the mess that we see that's so common, God, make yourself known. Make yourself known. We love you, God, and we praise you for who you are. 